Hi everyone, uh, Dave here. I hope you're all doing well. Thanks for coming along to another episode of Legends of the Spire. Uh, now I'm back on the players this week uh, after having a break last week and I have Steve Wilkinson with me. Uh, now Steve started his career at Leicester, uh, had a big long stint at Mansfield where he came up against Chesterfield in that amazing 5-2 uh, game in the playoffs in 1995 and then joined Chesterfield uh, in 1997 after leaving Preston. He had three seasons at Chesterfield uh, the forward playing with people like David Reeves and John Howard and Roger Willis and we even mentioned Jean-Jacques Missy Missy and Jason Lee too. Uh, so it was really good to get his thoughts uh, on his time at the club. Uh, since retiring in 2000, uh, he has had a career at Loughborough College. Uh, so he now works with elite sports people from lots of different sports uh, and even had a gold medalist uh, at the Paralympics in Tokyo this summer. Uh, so it was really interesting to get his thoughts uh, both on his playing career uh, but also on his move uh, into Loughborough College and uh, working with young athletes from lots of different areas as well. Uh, obviously Chesterfield have a bit of an association with Loughborough. Uh, Tom Curtis and John Duncan uh, have also had an association with them uh, so it was really interesting to get his thoughts uh, about his work there. As always, we are at Spire Legends on Twitter and Instagram and Legends of the Spire on Facebook, so do get in touch. Uh, but here we are with the latest episode of Legends of the Spire with Steve Wilkinson. Legends of the Spire! You're from uh, Lincoln, aren't you? But you started at Leicester, is that right? Yeah, um, so I was... Um... I played in a really, really good youth team um, in Lincolnshire. Um, we played on a Saturday in the Newark League, and then we also played on the Sunday in the Lincolnshire League. Um, and out of my group, and there's one or two names you'll remember here, so Marlon Beresford, who played for years and years in, at Burnley, was in goal. Shane Nicholson, who you'll be well aware of because he played for Chesterfield, was yeah. playing left back for us. Um, and another couple of lads who actually, one went to Lincoln and never really broke into the first team and one of my colleagues from from that team also came to, to Leicester with me but he wanted to stay on at school so he only came and played youth team games um, in the evening and occasionally on a Saturday um, so we were a really really strong side um, and I, th I think one of the, the things that made us so strong was that we did play as a group in one league on a Saturday afternoon and then on a Sunday that would be unheard of now because oh well, you're playing too much but actually I think I think that helped us all progress and develop. Um, and, and yeah, we would only train once a week, but we'd be, be training, sorry, playing twice a week. Um, problems arose when I got school matches on a Saturday morning and then flying off to play in the afternoon. But um, we, we, seemed to, we seemed to cope. And I think that made me into the player that I became as a professional, somebody who was fairly resilient until the latter part of their career. Mm. Were, were you always up front? Would you believe I started as a left back? Right, okay. <laughs> um, so this would be, I'm going to say about under 11, maybe under 12. Um, I played as a, a left back and I just seemed to, to find this instinct to crop up in the penalty box from different positions and different attacks and score goals. And, and bit by bit, um, they, they moved me from left back, I think, to centre forward when, and it may, may have coincided with Shane arriving, actually, a proper left-sided yeah. defender rather than me playing as a left back on my right foot um, but yeah I then got moved forward and um, really spent well 
I would say 90% of my professional career as a centre forward, maybe 95 is a better, better judgment. So how did it all turn out with Leicester? Was that the old blue forms that everyone's talked about? Um, yeah. So um, it was, I got Lincoln were very interested in signing me. Notts County were also very interested in signing me. I'd been to Forest a couple of times on trial. Um, never felt like that was going to work out. But but Leicester at that point were, were the highest ranked team and, and seemed to show more interest than anyone, anybody. Um, there was a little bit of interest shown by Watford as well. Um, so Graham Taylor, who obviously managed Lincoln for a long time, and most of his coaching staff at that point were former Lincoln players. Um, and when, you, when you're born and brought up in Lincoln, everybody seems to know everybody. I, I'm sure it's the same in Chesterfield. I'm sure it's the same in... Um, in most towns, but but we'd got a friend of a friend who of a friend who was Graham Taylor's assistant, and and so I went down and and, and played a, a few games for them. But realistically, Leicester were the ones that, that showed the the most interest, as well as being the highest ranked. And I I suppose in my head I wanted to go as high as possible with a view that I could drop down, yeah. rather than um, starting somewhere and then trying to work your way up. I think it was better to start at the top to work down. Mm. Were you, who were you, did you get chances to train with the first team and, and things like that when you last in? Again, my, because I'm a September birthday, um, I was the first one of like that group of apprentices that's, that signed at 16 stroke 17. And as soon as you get to 18, you have to sign a professional contract, hmm. assuming they offer you one. Um, and so I'd had all, um, I'd had my YTS payment each uh for each month in the first year of £26.50, I think it was back in the day. Um, and then I got a rise then uh, that took me to something like £31.50. But then as soon as then I turned 18, I, I signed on a professional contract. And when I looked at all the figures, because I then had to pay my own board, I then had to pay my own food at lunch. So I was, let, I was worse off. But um, within about a year, we'd had a couple of changes of manager and David Pleat came in and I was, I think it was just turned 18. Um, maybe actually, yeah, maybe just turned 18. There was a chance I was going to play under Brian Hamilton and then he got the sack. Um, and then David Pleat saw me in one training session and threw me straight in the first team, partly because three of the other strikers were injured. But it was like, oh my God, I've gone from being a youth team player, scoring lots of goals to playing a handful of reserve games but then into the first team and I scored my first goal for Leicester uh, against Crystal Palace in a four-all draw on Boxing Day, uh, late 80s, I think. Uh, did, you, did you get that like, wow, I've made it? <laughs> um, I, I always thought that, but I, but I was also realistic enough to know that we got three strikers that were out injured and then David Pleat wanted to play a slightly different way. So... Um, we would have a target man in Mike Newell, but he would then play with similar to what a lot of clubs play with now, a number 10 who would drop off to receive its feet. And he went and signed Nicky Cross from, uh, I'm going to say West Brom, um, or it might have been Stoke. Um, and obviously when the, when a club's paying, well, 300 or 350,000 pounds at that point, um, a, a young player who's developing in the game, you drop down the pecking order a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was still training with them on a regular basis, but actually I, I, I was a, a regular reserve player who occasionally went to first team games. Yeah. And you had a bit of a, you had a loan move to crew. Was it crew? I did. I, so I, I had, in fact, 
uh, the, the start of that, the, the next season, I went to Rochdale on loan in pre-season. That was really good, really enjoyed that. Um, but it was pre-season, so there were only friendlies. Mm. And then I came back um, to Leicester, and I think within about four or five days, Dario Grady had contacted me um, saying, David Pleats, happy for you to come on loan for us. And I played five or six games for them, scored two or three goals, um, proved that I could play at that level, but still felt I could play higher up for Leicester. But obviously limited opportunities at Leicester. And I just I just kept biding my time, waiting the opportunity. And obviously then Mansfield came along in uh, in early 90s. Yeah. Yeah, so... Obviously, you moved to Mansfield. What was it about 80, 80 grand? Was it something like it, that? It, it was, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting how clubs measure what they pay for a player, um, because actually, the, the 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 signing on fee that the player receives may only be small, but that's always included in that fee. So that it, it gets distorted a little bit what 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 they've actually paid. Um, I, I think my uh, yeah, it was something like. 75 80 grand um and yeah it was it was the right move for me at the right time um i did have the chance to go to swansea actually and i went went for talks with swansea um but i think being an east midlands boy mm. i think i i didn't really want at 19 to be upping everything and moving down to south wales um i don't regret not going but at the time i i went on the day i was I went down to have talks with them. They were playing Panathinaikos in a in a cup winners' cup tie that night. So I was putting the holiday in, um, given everything that I actually wanted as they tried to persuade. And then went to watch this game in the evening, and then had talks the following morning. But even though Mansfield offered me slightly less, it just felt right to stay East Midlands based at that particular point. Is there a bit of a, a bit of pressure when you're you're quite young and you get a like a transfer fee attached to you like that? I, 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 do you know, I felt pressure all the time um, in terms of, oh, right, such and such a, a club is interested in you. And then if, if it went past, if you want, the, the, the chairman or managing directors agreeing something and then you went for talks, I always felt pressure in those situations because actually I'd never been interviewed for a job until I ended up with my job at college. And that was in my early 30s. The interviews that I went to were, right, oh, we've watched you play for such and such. We've watched you do this. We've watched you do that. Um, we want to sign you. This is what we're prepared to offer. And it's like, okay, well, actually, the club's prepared to sell me. There's been a fee agreed above my head without me realising it. And then you're trying to negotiate a contract. And actually, it was only when I, when I moved from Preston to Chessfield that I, I'm not going to say I employed an agent because that's not quite the, the way, uh, but I employed somebody from the, the PFA to give me advice and sit in with me, with me on the meeting because I realised in my mid to late 20s that was going to be the most important contract in my career mm. to try and set me up, not necessarily for the short-term basis, but for, for longer term once I needed to find other employment. Um, I mean, whatever it is, 25, 30 years on now, players playing at that level wouldn't need to do that. But actually, we do. And it's always been the case. I had to find I had to find another job for myself, um, which again has been really really nice because actually I've gone from being let's say uh, two or three hours a day now to, to 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 seven hours a day and earning what I would call a proper living rather than a, 
a football living which paid really well but but limited time on the training ground and but lots of traveling all over the country yeah yeah um, that's that's it isn't it you never quite know where you're going to end up do you when you're a footballer <laughs> well I, I did there's, there's lots of times where somebody said oh what was it like it must have been fantastic and I said it was fantastic but actually there were occasions where so let's say for instance uh, I, I recall and this 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 was a Oh, Tuesday night when I was playing for Chesterfield having played on the Saturday I thought right great uh, fingers crossed I'll be playing on Tuesday night at Blackpool and we got to Blackpool and John, John changed the team because he wanted to try something not necessarily slightly different but Blackpool were on a really good run so let's take out an attacking player and go a bit more defensive and then all of a sudden I found myself then traveling to Bury the following night because there wasn't enough if you want of the the 18 and 19 year olds to be able to fill the team. So I'd gone to, to Blackpool on a Tuesday night, travelled all the way back. And I, at that point, I was living in where, where I live now in Loughborough and then having to travel back up to then go to Bury and play in a, in a reserve game. And it was just that unpredictability, I suppose, is the best way to put it, of, of, of a football life. Um, everybody uh, else would have the day off and then I was I was travelling up to, yeah, to Bury and it was never guaranteed what 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 the week would bring well yeah and it's interesting because i had a few players that i've talked to where they've said they had those moments where they were thinking you know i should be really thankful because i've got a, a football career here but there's you know i just can't be bothered <laughs> I, mean, no. I, I i there were there were a couple of occasions um so once when i really really early in my career when i when i lost form at mansfield and i really questioned whether I'd got enough to be able to play at the at that level, um, and almost by the, I mean, we, we, there's a lot of talk about mental health in football now and in mental health in sport. Well, actually, if we go back 30 years, there what there wasn't that type of, um, not necessarily support, but but we just got on and dealt with it ourselves. And and unfortunately, I'm sure there's lots of players out there whose wives took some. I'm trying to think of the best word. A verbal barrage from us because if you're out of form and you're not in the team there's nothing worse because mm. you, you're constantly questioning yourself and and you you get to a point where you've gone from being right the way up there to then quite quickly down there and you've got to find a way to get back up there and and it comes through hard work resilience repetition and in some cases a bit of luck as well but yeah and and yeah and, and in saying that i suppose nowadays if someone's not feeling okay either physically or mentally they're probably encouraged a bit more to actually say um, yes. whereas like say back then probably it was the other way around wasn't it you just had to play through it and, yeah and, and and actually if you and maybe it's slightly different now if we're if we're talking about Chesterfield and Mansfield and the clubs I played for but but if you look at the I don't know whether you've read Mick, Mick Rathbone's book The Smell of Football but it but in it he talks about um how the game changed from when he was playing for Halifax, and obviously I met him at Preston. We got on really well. He, he was he was a physio that got me through two knee operations for a variety of different reasons. But he but he wrote this book called The Smell of Football, um, and he talks about the difference from when we played in the the late eighties, early nineties, where the dugout was a dugout, and there'd be enough room for the manager, the assistant manager, and the physio. The physio might well have a bucket and sponge, <laughs> and then there'd be enough room for one possibly two subs in those days actually if you now look at the, the dugouts there's, there's a goalkeeping coach first team coach manager assistant manager doctor physio um 
Then there'll be five subs. They're all sat in Recaro seats that are heated. And, and the game has changed dramatically. And I can guarantee somewhere in all those very, very high-ranking clubs, and actually maybe some of the lower-ranking clubs as well, there'll be a psychologist supporting them. Um, the high-ranking clubs are likely to be in paid roles. Maybe at the lower-ranking clubs, it's likely to be somebody who's studying sports psychology at a local university come in and do your um, uh, placement here um, and, yeah, support the players. And, and yeah, it's about all those processes now that, that are so different to, to yeah, the late, late 80s, early 90s when, when I was playing. So I suppose I can't really talk to you about Mansfield too much because this is a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I get in trouble, but you did score five goals in a match, didn't you? It was against Birmingham. It was against Birmingham, yes. I mean, that Uh, must be amazing, just scoring five goals. It it was a fantastic evening. Um, All the goals were, like, completely bizarre because none of them were tap-ins. The first one I hit from 20 yards. I don't think I ever scored another goal from 20 yards in my career. Um, And then just being in the right place at the right time to little through balls for whatever reason uh, everything just fell to me and fell to me perfectly ironically i still see Birm- the birmingham city keeper from from that time so so martin thomas used to work for the fa as um england's assistant goalkeeping coach so if i go on a course to st george's park as as, as was then or Lillishall, uh, or occasionally to wembley I would see him and he, oh, you just see his head drop as, as I walk along. Hi, Martin, how are you? Do you remember? I think it was something like April the 4th. And it, yes, Steve, never forgotten it. Yeah, move on. Let's change the subject. Um, <laughs> but yeah, fantastic evening. I suppose there were there were other occasions where I scored hat where I scored hat tricks where I felt it was not necessarily an earned hat trick. Everything that evening just fell in the right place at the right time. However, I don't know, but actually um, I remember a, a hat-trick I scored for Preston at Wigan quite early on in the season where a bit similar to Harry Kane's the other night, left foot, right foot, header. Mm. And I felt, yeah, that I've really contributed. Scoring all five in one game was amazing, but it was just like a complete fluke. <laughs> <laughs> for no other reason than it, it, it doesn't happen that regular. Yeah, yeah. It's like... How did that happen? It, it was it was it was bizarre because you want to replicate it again, but you never will. Were you on a good goal bonus? <laughs> um, I was, but we fell short in the end because actually those, those were the last goals I scored that season. So I think there was about seven games left, and I didn't score again. I used up all my luck in one game, I think. <laughs> oh, that's the way it goes sometimes, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, you, so you obviously scored a, a lot of goals, didn't you? In 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 your spell at Mansfield, like eighty. Three, I think. Something. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether, where I still sit. I, for a little while, I was fifth or sixth on the, the all-time goal scorers list. Um, I don't know whether that was behind Kevin Randall and Ernie, Ernie Moss, but obviously two people who both played for, for Mansfield and then played for Chesterfield as well. Um, but, but yeah, I, I sat somewhere fifth or sixth in their uh, all-time goal scorers list. I, I think that will have changed a little bit now. But, but then I say that, players are far more nomadic because... I nearly had five seasons at Mansfield, which if you're scoring between 15 and 20 goals a season, you're going to mount that up over that period of time. Yeah, I mean, players getting a 10 years and getting a testimonial it happens less and less, doesn't it? It's kind of exactly, feels like yeah. they should put the years down a little bit and make it six or <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> Give more people yeah. a chance. And, and the big key season, obviously the 94-95 season was a really good one for Chesterfield because we got 
promoted in the playoffs against Bury. And obviously, yeah. you were at Mansfield then, and there was a few key games that season. So you actually scored a hat trick against Chesterfield in the four-two win, which I think was in right December time. That season. it was, just, uh, yeah, and I think it was a lunchtime kickoff as well. Um, it was, yeah, just five or six days before Christmas, maybe. Um, and and yeah, uh, that was that was a, a, a great day. Um, and part of what was a really, really good season for me because um, I think I ended up with 25, 26 that season. Um, but actually, the end, the end outcome was that myself, Paul Holland, who obviously then moved on to Sheffield United before coming to Chesterfield, um, Ian Barraclough and Darren Ward, we all played really, really well that year for, for Mansfield. But then the team sort of splintered as we all moved on to bigger and better things. Um, and yeah, my opportunity then, even though through the disappointment of not not making it through the playoffs, my dis- my disappointment quite rapidly turned to elation as I got a really really good move to a a bigger profile club, even though it was in the same league, who had been through the same experiences because obviously Barry beat Preston as well in the playoffs, and then I ended up signing there. Um, and and it sort of I remember the disappointment of the the. the the, the Tuesday night when when Chesterfield beat us and then going in on the Wednesday morning for a little bit of a debrief with Andy King. Uh, remember talking to Paul Holland, who thought he was on the move at that point. Remember talking to Darren, who thought he was on the move and thinking, oh, right, OK, this where's this going now? And by the time I got home, my wife said, oh, um, somebody called Gary Peters has rang from Preston. They're, they're, they're keen to sign you. And I said, oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, what's he, oh, he's he's going to ring back this afternoon. Uh, well, they got knocked out as well last night. What's what's going on? It's like, but but actually, within five or six days, I'd gone up to Preston, had a good look around the club. Um, David Moyes meet, uh, was was meet and greet, uh, made me feel really welcome, and my, my wife and two little ones really welcome. And it was it was one of those situations where, albeit she said, "Well, Caroline said to me, why do we really want to move to another club in the same?" They said, "This opportunity is too good to miss." you'll you realise um, and my experiences of playing at Preston even when they were struggling was seven or eight thousand packed into Deepdale I said if this goes well this this will go really well and for the first season it did um, and for the first four or five games the following season it did because it was the, the leading scorer in the whole of the football league and then one challenge at Bristol City and and I needed one knee operation in September and then another one in January and it was just like you go from like I talked about earlier you go from there to there quite quickly um, and you go from being first choice and the leading scorer in the country to being fifth choice very quickly. Yeah. Having said that, playing for a club like Preston increased my profile, increased my reputation, increased my financial worth, I suppose. And then that allowed me then to get two years after that, a really good move to Chesterfield. Yeah. And just going back to that uh, playoff season for a moment, like I've spoken to lots of players who played for Chesterfield for that 5-2 but it's quite kind of interesting to get a perspective from the opposition, I suppose. Kind of what what went wrong? <laughs> well, kind of lost the, their heads a bit. The, the, the two sendings off cost us, because um, I think at, at 2-2, when we went into extra time, I think because we then scored two away goals, we were in the, the, the driving seat. But I think Kevin Lampkin and Mark Peters both got sent off in extra time and, and we ended up finishing the game with nine men. And yeah, that, that's, that's where we lost it. Um, uh, it was just like, 
one of those situations. Yeah, I suppose you'll. And and one of one of the things I, I did notice when I then moved to Chesterfield two years ago, very experienced players. Whereas actually that that group at Mansfield, um, I think I was sort of one of the the relatively older ones at, at twenty five at that point. Um, and the rest of them were all in their early twenties. And, and if you've if you're new to that level of performance, because I'd, I'd obviously had promotion with Mansfield prior to that. Um, Chesterfield had got a, a series of players who'd been through um, some great times, but all very experienced. And I think it showed in, on, on, the, on that evening when, when push came to shove, those young players just couldn't keep their heads. Uh, I think it was two, was it two bookings for Mark Peters and then Kevin Lampkin for descent, something like that. But hey, out, out of that, that poor memory on that Tuesday night and all that disappointment of, of not going to Wembley, the following morning, everything changed. And, and yeah, there's, there's that um, disappointment turning into um, a huge amount of ambition and desire and enthusiasm, and it changes so quickly. And the first one came from Steve Wilkinson against his former club. And Savile and Wilkinson combined again for a brilliant third goal. The confidence was high and the finishing was superb. The first of the hat-trick was Steve Wilkinson against his former club. A great header from a Simon Davy cross. Savile was one of the first to congratulate him and then scored his hat-trick goal shortly afterwards thanks to Steve Wilkinson. History made at Deepdale, a double hat-trick for the first time in over 50 years. Not surprisingly, the manager was a very happy man. When when a club like Preston comes in for you, obviously they've got a they've got a huge history, haven't they? And they've got yeah. all like iconic players that have played for yeah. them and things like that. Is that when when a club like that comes in for you, is it all those type of things that just kind of mixes together to make it so exciting? Yeah. Um. I, I, so like I said, we I've been up there a few times with with Mansfield, and and always even though there were, there, there was some they were struggling a little bit. It was just like. So from, from what I was used to at Mansfield of two and a half thousand people on a good day, all of a sudden you've got seven or eight thousand. It was just like, oh, my God, at this level. Um, and yeah, the, it, it, it's, it's passed down from generation to generation that, oh, well, the, the great Tom Finney and then the great Bill Shankly and then um, from, from, from my era, the great Ian Bryson, et cetera, et cetera, and, and David Moyes. It's, it's just like there's just this historical passed on from generation to generation. So granddad supported Preston, took his son, and then um, dad then supports Preston, so take his kids. And it's just, yeah. it, it's, it's in the blood. Um, they, will all, they will all have an affiliation to another team, but actually, and, and, and it's right, it's proud Preston, and, and they, 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 they maintain that, that pride massively. And when they go back up every, every, it's not once a year, every couple of years, the reception I get is just amazing. Um, and yeah, people that are very proud to be associated with that club. Yeah, and fans that really love football. Which yes, you don't yeah. always. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I imagine just some clubs, the fans just 
I don't know, get it more, or I don't know, it's just in the blood more. I, I don't know. It, 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 so it's really bizarre you saying that, but but my, my eldest daughter lives in Leeds now, and um, the the passion at a Leeds football match is just beyond comparison. And I recall back to the end of the the, the 95, 96 season where we played Exeter and we were presented with the, 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 the championship trophy and there was 18 and a half thousand packed into Deepdale. There wasn't a spare seat in the, in the venue, but there were also about 2000 people who tried to get in who couldn't. And it was just like, Oh my God, this is the third division. We're yeah. playing Exeter and you can't get any more. You've got people standing outside because they can't get in. It was just, yeah, just that pride, that emotion, just, a, a difference to what I'd experienced at, at Mansfield, but but took me back to the, the the Leicester time almost, but without being a first team player and without feeling part of the first team. Mm. Lots of people watching, lots of support, lots of adulation, I suppose. It's just like re- real passionate football and real passionate successful football as well. Yeah, and you, and you got the title, didn't you? When you were we, we did get the title. Yeah, um, and we 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 won it by about five or six points quite comfortably in the end. There was a, there was a point of about four or five games from the end where I think we lost on a Tuesday night away at Cambridge and wasn't necessarily panicking, but it was all like, oh, we're just, just throwing the pieces of the jigsaw in the air and are they going to come down in the right place? But then I think we won the last three 2-0 on the, each, each game 2-0 quite comfortably, uh, Hartlepool away, Orient away, and then Exeter at home. Um, and yeah, won it, won it comfortably. Um, and deserve to because I think we only lost something like three games all season. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I had um, so so you can you can tell from the way I'm talking and the enthusiasm. I've got some really really fond memories from that first season and some some quite challenging memories from the second season in terms of the injury. But it, it's what happens in football, um, and it was the first real experience I'd had of only playing about ten games in a season because of two knee operations. Yeah. And and how so? How, did that just kind of was it just a a, a freak thing in a match then? Yeah, I, I quite early on in in the, the game at Bristol, I, I I turned and moved the ball, um, and just the, the the guy clattered me. I got a free kick, and I got up and thinking, oh god, my knee's so sore. What have I done? And then I I don't know whether the physio noticed. But I was I was hobbling for most of the game, and then as soon as we got on the bus, because obviously uh, Bristol to Preston's a fair old journey back, um, and I remember getting on the bus saying, "Oh, can I have some ice?" and and I, I sat with some ice on my knee, and then me and my wife and the children we were going to the Lake District the following day, um, and we were we were walking around the Lake District. Well, I wasn't. I was I was hobbling around the Lake District, and and it got to about four o'clock in the afternoon as we we're about to, to leave and I, I need to ring the physio I've got I, I need to report this I, I can't carry on so so I rang Mick Rathbone and he said oh uh, drop your wife off at home and then head back to the club I'll see you at seven o'clock tonight so um, he did a few tests on me he said we'll get you in with a specialist I think you've you've, you've, you've ripped your cartilage quite badly um, I can't tell but that's that's what all these signs and symptoms are hinting at so I saw the specialist the following day um, he did. He 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 stuck this huge needle into my knee and took all this fluid out. There was all this manky colour. It was like really painful. And said, uh, eight o'clock in the morning. I want you. At, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but you'll be you'll be operated on at, at ten tomorrow morning. So, for, again, that disappointment on a Saturday. All of a sudden, to Tuesday, you're on the road to recovery. Or oh, so yeah. I thought. Yeah, and and like 
I don't know, uh, like how mentally did you did you take it then? Was that quite a down, um, down I, spell? I, I, was, I was really disappointed because, yeah, I was the leading scorer in the Football League. I got seven goals in the first five games of the season, um, including that hat-trick at Wigan. And then uh, I'd started pre-season really well as well. So we, we played West Brom, who... So Preston had got promotion, so we were in the second. I think West Brom were a first division club at that time. Um, and we'd beaten them. And then we played Blackburn in another pre-season game and I scored two against them. And I was just absolutely flying. And I'd gone on a real... Um, so I knew I'd done well in that first season, but I felt I could do better. Um, so I'd gone on a physical training campaign where rather than warming up in the, and going to the gym and warming up on a, on a, on a bike, I went and warmed up on the rower. And I set myself a target to do a thousand meters as a warm up. So I was doing this all over body workout. And then I was then doing a gym circuit as well. And when I came back, I was uh, to pre-season, there was one or two questions asked because I was seven or eight pounds heavier. And my, my running in terms of long distance was labored because I was carrying more weight. But actually, I just felt so physically strong, so powerful. And then scored two in that, that warm-up game against West Brom and then against Blackburn, I played really well and then started the season with a hat-trick and two somewhere else. And it was just like, yeah, I'm in the form of my life here. Um, and like I say, I went from being first choice quite quickly at Bristol to then needing knee surgery. And yeah, it was Christmas when I came back, but it wasn't right. And then, yeah, and they, they signed David Reeves. They signed... Um, uh, Gary Bennett, and then somebody else. Uh, oh, uh, Preston striker Kurt Noble, uh, Kurt Nogan. Um, so all of a sudden, yeah, I went from being first choice to fifth choice. But by the time I then returned to the starting lineup in March, and the season was over, yeah, um, and yeah, it was always going to then be tough. And I, I, I would have needed to do another real physical preseason, but actually, at that point, I, there was other clubs interested in me, including Chesterfield. Mm. Preston played some neat stuff at times and deserved their equaliser, a well-worked move, and it brought in both their prolific strikers. At the far post, the header from Andy Savile, enabling Steve Wilkinson, the country's leading scorer, to notch his sixth in four games. And how would you describe yourself as a, as a player in terms of your style and things like that before the injury and then after it? Um, so I think before the injury, I was an out-and-out number nine. Um, when I went to Preston, I think my, my role changed a little bit. The, 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 the working partnership with Andy Savile in that first season, he scored lots of goals. I created quite a few, but also scored goals myself. Um, and I think my, my football intelligence, which um, I then developed because obviously I then became a B-licensed coach, my football intelligence has allowed me to play not just an out-and-out -out number, number nine role, but then allowed me to go and do other things. Um, and link up play, um, allow. So one of the things that we that we had at Preston was two central midfield players who both wanted to get in the box. Well, if you've got your two midfield players running into the box and then your two centre forwards, that leaves you exposed if the ball's given away. So if they ran past me, I tended to hold my position and and use a bit of the football intelligence I developed in Mansfield, where certainly over the maybe after those Chesterfield games, we had a few games where. Um, we got people out, suspended, and I ended up playing alongside Paul Holland for a little while in midfield. Um, and, yeah, it was just like it, it developed my game a bit more 
from just being a straightforward running in the channels, trying to score goals number nine, I became a bit more of a rounded footballer um, yeah. and made, made me think about the game a bit more and how I could develop it. Um, that also coincided with my my sort of the mid-90s and my love of Arsenal because um, I, I was always a obviously a Lincoln fan as a, as a boy because that's where I was born and brought up. Then I had an affiliation with Leicester because that was my first club. But actually the mid-90s when I was watching Arsenal play, it was just like, oh my God, Dennis Bergkamp, what a player. And I tried to model myself in the second and third division, playing in a similar way to that, mm. albeit never going to reach those particular heights. But actually looking at his movement, watching the, the runs he made, watching how he linked play up and the range of passing. And it was just like, okay, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a love of this club you're playing for, but also a love of the way you play. And, and that had a big influence on me latter part of my career and, and then during my coaching time as well. Yeah. And so how did it come about with Chesterfield then? So it's 97, isn't it? You came to Chesterfield. Um, so, yeah, at the end of, of that season, having gone from sort of first choice to fifth choice, um, I was aware of a couple of clubs interested. Um, and I got a call from Kevin Randall saying, look, we'd like you to come and have talks with us. Um, I think John Duncan at that point was away on holiday. So I met Kevin and Norton Lee. Um, in the boardroom at Chessfield. And that was the first time I took, and it wasn't an agent, but I, but I took a representative of the PFA who knew all the, the ins and outs and intricacies of salaries at Chessfield. Obviously, that was on the back of a, an amazing FA Cup run. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, we, we sat down, we had this, this chat, um, all went really well. And me and my wife both really wanted to come back to the East Midlands if we were going to move anywhere. Um, and the way things worked out, it allowed me to then travel from Loughborough because my wife could start a new career as a tennis coach here in Loughborough. My kids could go to school as they were about to go to school in Preston, whereas if I'd, we'd moved to Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, there's sort of there would have been another year before they'd have gone to school. So, so yeah, I came 15 minutes over the, the Derbyshire-Leicestershire border, um, and it didn't add a huge amount to me. It was one or two occasions where traffic caused me mayhem getting up and down the M1 but realistically it was fine um, and yeah it was it was a really good package that profile I talked about earlier of, of being a Preston player gives you a little bit more negotiating power mm -hmm. um, raised my profile as a player because I'd won a championship um, for two seasons um, on the trot so the, the last one at Mansfield 94-95 and then 95-96 I'd been part of the highest scoring teams both of those seasons. So there was obviously something I was doing correct. Um, and yeah, um, negotiated a deal, which was, which was really good. Um, did but Norton, also I think a really, really good deal for Chesterfield as well. Did Norton Lee try and drive a hard bargain? Um, I, th I think all chairmen try to drive a hard bargain. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think that's part and parcel of it. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it was interesting, but it was great having somebody alongside me to, to, to mm. sort of, mm, are you sure? And, and just question them because because you it, it, it's difficult for you to do that um, yeah. as a as a 26 27 28 year old footballer you want the best deal for yourself but you don't know what actually is the best deal so so having somebody alongside you was, was it was really beneficial to me at the time. This is Beaumont. Terry facing him. It's a good first block on, but now it's back with Curtis. A little touch and into the back of the net from Wilkinson. 
and Chesterfield have equalised just before half-time. And it's almost their first strike on target of the game. But it's a vital one. Wilkinson's fifth goal of the season. And the little glancing header just deceived Shane Higgs and dropped into the net. What were your first impressions then of kind of John Duncan and training and... Um, so what was really interesting, and this coming back to how it developed me as a footballer, was I'd been used to playing in, and I'm not going to say really attacking teams, but quite fluid attacking football teams, whereas John was very methodical, very strict in his formation. Um, so I, I learned a whole new set of skills in terms of defensive responsibility as well as attacking responsibility, because I'm not going to say I was a free spirit, but actually... I was an attacking player who wanted to score goals where actually the success of Chesterfield in that FA Cup run was down to being resolute, playing a certain way, using Andy Morris, using um, John, John Howard, um, Tony Lormer, et cetera, et cetera, in a certain way that, that caused problems for teams. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I had to think about my defensive responsibility a lot more than, than I'd ever done before. That made me a much better player, made me a much, certainly a much better coach. Um, albeit I'm not sure it was perfect for my style of play, I became a better player, even if I didn't necessarily see that in terms of goals output and um, uh, creation of goals. And you, and you mentioned a few of those players you were with. So, uh, like around, I mean, Tony Lama kind of left, didn't he, quite soon after you arrived? Yeah. But it was kind of David Reeves and Andy Morris and John Howard and people like that around then. Yeah. Um, and obviously I became good friends with Tom Curtis because Tom ended up coming and doing, working down here in Loughborough, running, yeah. the, running the university team. So we met up on, John Duncan also did that for a little while as well, which was, which was good to catch up with, with, with John. Um, and Paul, Paul Holland, who I'd known anyway for, for years and years through our Mansfield connection. Um, so it was, it was quite familiar in terms of people I knew, but also quite, quite daunting in terms of signing for a club who are your local rivals literally across the, the county border um, and who I'd scored goals against, but also that was now part of that team. So, um, yeah, a different set of circumstances. And again, something that made me a more rounded and, 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 and better footballer, I think, because of the experiences and, and moving to a slightly different changing room, feeling like an outsider from a from another club who have been key rivals, but also learning how to, to develop and overcome that. Yeah, and it's interesting, really, because we've had a lot of... It, it obviously is a really intense rivalry, um, and it still is now. But there's a lot of players that have moved between the two over the years, and some have been really massive players that have scored a lot of goals, others have been yeah. on a little bit of a stint between the two. What was it like as a, as a player? What was the rea reaction from both sides like? Um, as... as I mean, it, it was always going to be tricky coming to Chesterfield. Um, and I, I remember distinctly one or two um, comments from the stands, certainly at Saltergate, was, well, he scored loads of goals from Mansfield, why can't you do it here? It was like, yeah, but it, the, the football was slightly different and the, the approach was slightly different. And um, so it made it tough. Um, and I, I would have liked to have scored more goals and I'd like to have been more creative but actually I, like I said earlier I became a better footballer and a better thinking footballer for John and Kevin's influence on me um, and I was I was disrupted one pre-season with an Achilles tendon injury that I picked up on the second or third day when I, we were we were running around 
um, I can't remember the name of the woods now, but just stood on a tree root awkwardly. And my, but the following morning, my Achilles flared up and I had to go in plaster for, for a couple of weeks to completely immobilize it. And then uh, there was another season where I, um, I needed another knee operation because I, I tweaked that cartilage again. So a bit, like I said, the latter part of my career was, was influenced massively by injuries, um, which maybe dented a little bit of, of my, um, not enthusiasm, because that's not quite the right word, but, but the, amount I want, the amount I could play for Chesterfield. And because they'd had that fantastic cup run, because they'd generated a lot of money, they could go and sign another player if somebody was injured. So you were always fighting a battle. And, and one of the questions you 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 were you put down was the competition between Tony Lormer, John Howard, David Reeves, myself, uh, Andy Morris. Competition is great because it pushes players, but also if you're a long way down the pecking order, it can be quite challenging in terms of coming back to what we we're talking about, demoralising and, and the mental health situation. So trying to trying to find the right balance between that was 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 tough. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because in your first season with us, I think you scored about six goals, something like that, first season. Yeah. But I think top goal scorer was only on eight. That yeah. Season. So it was really spread around, wasn't it? Around the yeah, team. yeah. Um, and, 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 and again, we were, we were close to the players. We never, and this was, I think this was one of the factors I noticed over the three years. There was never quite enough goals scored to get us into that playoff position. Um We'd win lots of games 1 0 or by the odd goal, but it was just like there was also games where you were trying to drag it, uh, trying to make sure that we got a result. And it was just like, oh, we'll take a 0 0 or a 1 1. It was just finding a way to, if we'd have added six or seven goals to that total uh, across the whole team, mm. that might have been the difference between making the playoffs and not. Um, one, one of the things coming back to my Preston days is, one of the things that, that, that Gary Peters was very mathematical in his approach. So he would say, right, this season for us to get promotion, looking on the back of what they did when they lost in the playoffs to Bury, right, we didn't score enough goals. So we need to score between 70 and 78 goals. And he'd work that out. And I think in that season, we scored 83, something like that in the league. But he also, we need to make sure we only concede 40. So one, one goal per game. And, and when you look at the, in, in, in 95, when you look at the totals, that marries up to us winning the league. And I remember him saying that as part of the, the, the sales pitch, like I want you and this other striker I'm interested in to score 40 goals. I then want two of my midfield players to score 10 goals each. And then my back four have got to create, to, to be involved in the other, the other 10 somehow. And it was just like, oh, right. But then when you look at it and look at the final figures, they were the reason why we won the league. Mm. Um, whereas at Chesterfield, we conceded much fewer goals, but we didn't quite score enough. Um, yeah, because like you say, we finished I think tenth and then ninth in your yeah. first two seasons. So it was it was it was kind of turning those draws into wins and exactly like, just goals. just an, an extra goal in four or five games would give you an extra eight nine points, and then all of a sudden you're in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about. Um, Jean-Jacques Missy Missy and Jason Lee, just because yeah. they, they, they were around when you were here. and They, they were. I, and and it, I, again, it's interesting because actually I'd forgotten about Jean-Jacques. Um, and I remember playing in a reserve game for him uh, with him up front. And I can't remember where we played. Um, but I, I looked at some stats and I realised he played one game for Chesterfield while he was there. I think he played three or four reserve games. But he played more games for Cameroon as an international than he did for Chesterfield. <laughs> 
Um, and then Jason Lee was just a fantastic character. Um, I got on really well with Jason. Um, and he, he was like me, an out and out centre forward. And we had to develop our games to play under John and Kevin um, and become better defenders and better, um, better all-rounded players. Um, but at the same time, we got on really well because I think we went through some similar experiences of finding, I'm not going to say it was negative, but, but just not quite the free expression that we've been used to at our previous clubs. Um, but I think it had a positive effect on our outlook because I see Jason now very occasionally. He works for the PFA and um, he did his coaching badges the same way as I did. So, so it had a, an influence on our wider football development. I said, I, yeah, I guess it's just experience, isn't it? And I suppose as strikers, you'll be, are you quite a close knit bunch of your strikers? Because obviously you're competitors, but you're in the same position. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah, or... <laughs> yeah we, I mean, we, we are. I suppose it's a little bit like the goalkeeping union, because I, I was watching something the other day where um, uh, Aaron Ramsdale and Ben Foster were, were, were chatting at the end of the Arsenal uh, Watford game. And like, and, and ben, ben Foster was recording this as, as like a, a selfie video. And I'm thinking, there are different breed goalkeepers, but, but also strikers are a different breed. We, we've got to be really selfish. Um, but by being really selfish, you've got to be prepared to miss chances as well as score them. And that does make you a slightly different breed to the defenders who are uh, mainly pessimistic, trying to stop goals rather than being optimistic. So it's... That there, there are some influences in terms of personality that, that influence the position you play on the field, certainly. Yeah, and I suppose in some ways, obviously, there's um, footballers have to uh, give a bit of a different personality when they're on a pitch anyway, because it's a pretty dog-eat-dog, isn't it? But it is, yeah. strikers, I suppose, especially, you can be having a bit of inner turmoil about missing a chance or whatever, but outwardly, you've got to kind of still be a bit <laughs> you, you, you have to walk around with a smile on your face, even though you're, you're cursing yourself for missing an easy chance. Um, and, and through my coaching, I've talked a lot to, to, to strikers, like, go, go and miss another chance, go and miss another chance. Because actually, even if it's nil-nil and you've missed two easy chances and then you get another one towards the end of the game and knock it in, you're still a hero. Mm. Um, you've got to keep being prepared to get in those goal-scoring positions. Um, if you don't, if you're not in those positions, you're not going to score. But give yourself the best chance by being in those positions. Uh, a goalkeeper can make one mistake and be be hounded for for, for weeks, um, and 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 keeps getting reminded of that. Um, whereas strikers tend not to. The, the only thing about strikers is you only remember the goals you score. You don't remember the misses. Yeah. Having having said that, I do recall one. Um, when I was playing for, for Mansfield at Preston, where I missed from two yards out, complete open goal, put it wide, right in front of the town end at Deepdale and getting seriously jeered. And then the following season, I was a player for them. And and those those memories then change and turn around. Um, so, yeah, it it is about being in the right position at the right time and consistently being there. Yeah, and I suppose your last season with us, so this is 99-2000, in which we actually got relegated that season and John Duncan left and Nicky Law yeah. kind of took over. Were you were you kind of and you retired then, didn't you, after that season? I I, I, I retired from the from the professional game, yeah. Um so Nicky came in and, and changed the way we trained and I, I really enjoyed that. Um but I was already and, and 
John Duncan was really supportive of me because I was I was in my late twenties and I wanted to do my coaching badges. Um, so I'd done my what was the old FA level one and level two, and then um, on a Thursday he very kindly allowed me to to leave training at about half twelve so I could get to Villa Park for two o'clock. Um, as I did my UEFA B coaching license through the PFA, um, was was in a really good group that included Andy Townsend um, and one or two other professional players, but also Dennis Mortimer was was the the, the tutor on that. So I wanted to make sure I got those, and, and John was very supportive of that, as was Nicky, obviously when he took over, um, because I realised I was coming to the not the end of my professional career, but the end of my professional footballing career in terms of there was opportunity to play part-time and I needed to do something else. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I then, funny enough, signed for Ernie, well, Peter Morris at Kettering, but who was assisted by Ernie Moss. So the Chesterfield-Mansfield circle cropped up again. Uh, Peter, Peter Morris had been a coach at Leicester when I was there, but has also been manager at Mansfield for a little while. So, so that East Midlands circle of close-knit footballers stroke coaches just weaved its web again and what's that experience like with with Ernie then uh, it was great with Ernie I really really enjoyed it um we talked a lot because um he would travel down from Chesterfield and then there was a few times I, I'd meet him um at Leicester Forest East um and yeah we'd have we'd have football in chat all the way down to Kettering and then the same all the way back and and chewing the fat and and all those all those things as two strikers would um and yeah memories from Mansfield and from Chesterfield but also then fresh memories from Kettering um and yeah it was was good other than midway through that first season him and Peter Morris lost the job and then Carl Schutt took over and, and managed to get his promotion in the second year so just football it, it's a rotating door all the time oh, um, yeah. And, and there's so many, I, I talk to, to people about this, you meet so many acquaintances um, and friends, but then that competitive edge means they're, they're good friends, but not, they're not always, I don't know, not, not your ideal friends. Most of my really, really good friends are away from football because mm. I, it's like there is a competitive edge, but at the same time, there's also a, um, you understand the industry and how much it is a revolving door. I can imagine it's quite a complex, yeah. uh, a complex thing. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, acquaintances and, and friends in football. I can imagine it's uh, it's not as simple as as, as it seems. So, so if we get, my my closest friend in football is Carl Muggleton, who lives about fifteen minutes down the road. I still see him and his wife. He came to my wedding. I went to his. Um, we occasionally bump into each other at B&Q. He's now a, a driving instructor and does a little bit of coaching for, um, he did some for Peterborough and Northampton. Um, but we played together at Mansfield, at Chesterfield and at Leicester. And yeah, we, we, we both bump into each other every now and again. Um, but most of my really, really good friends aren't in football. Um, they're, they're people I've met because I wanted a, a different view of life, I suppose. Yeah. rather than the goldfish bowl that is football. Um, and I certainly found that when I retired, retrained to be a teacher, um, and then have moved on to become sort of like an elite athlete welfare officer, which is what I do now at the college. Yeah, and it's, uh, so tell us about what you, what you do now then. So you're at, you're at Loughborough College, but you also work with the 
with the women's team as well. Is that right? So yeah. So um, when when I moved from uh, Preston to Sheffield and we bought here in, bought a house here in Loughborough, um, both of my daughters were one was seven, one was five, and both showing an, an interest in sport. And then when we um, when I played for Kettering, then there would have been let's say ten and eight, and both said. Dad, is there a local football team? Can we get involved? Um, and I did a bit of research and found there was a local football team for girls. And I took them along. And because I was, I, I don't know whether I'd finished my B license at that point, but it was, um, I was assessing the standard of coaching and thinking, I know I can do a better job than this. Even though these are complete beginners, um, I can put on better sessions. So, so I got involved and got a, got a friend who lived around the corner involved. And then we took what was uh, an under 16, sorry, um, there was an under 16 team at this girls club, but then he took an under 12s and I took an under 11s that involved both of our daughters. And then we built it up to the point now where we've got two adult teams that have merged with the university, come under the lightning banner that's playing in the equivalent of the second division for men. Um, and then we've got two adult teams representing us as a club, plus then five junior teams um, so we've got about, there's about 140, 150 girls and women all representing Loughborough through mm. this organisation that I've been involved in and, and sort of coached, managed, been secretary, done other little jobs, but actually just giving it a bit of uh, football professionalism, even if it's voluntary run organisation, I suppose is the best way to put it. And that coincided with me working at the college as well. And yeah, I ran a men's football team there and then developed a girls football team. Um, and then I've changed roles a little bit to now being um, supporting elite athletes from a variety of different sports, triathlon, women's rugby. Um, I've got windsurfers, water polo players who were all representing their country or competing in international competition who I support through the processes I went through as a 16 and 17 year old, um, trying to manage your education and elite sport and, and the training. So I spend a lot of time talking to athletes from a variety of different sports and just giving them the benefit of my experience. And yeah, and, and Loughborough's got an amazing reputation, hasn't it? Going back, because like yeah. Paula Radcliffe was, was Loughborough, wasn't she? Yeah, Paula Radcliffe, Sebco, um, and then, um, uh, so uh, Thomas Young, who won a gold medal in Tokyo in the Paralympics, he's one of my students. So I'm very proud of Tom for, for what he's achieved. Um, but there are other athletes out there. Um, currently, I've got a powerlifter who lives quite local here in, in Loughborough. She's, she, she was world junior champion at powerlifting. So a variety of different sports. And, and yes, Loughborough is synonymous with sport. Um, the decision me and my wife made in 1997 to move here has been a fantastic one for my benefit, for my wife's benefit as a tennis coach and for both of our kids in terms of learning to swim, being part of tennis clubs, being part of football clubs. And, and that's enhanced their experience. So they've gone off and into the bigger world now. One lives in Leeds, the other lives in uh, St Albans, but it's still look out and know how much sport is important to everybody's lives. So this, the T38 100 meter Paralympic final for athletes with cerebral palsy or a similar neurological condition.
They get away first time. O'Hanlon is out well. So too is Zhu. And it's Zhu up into his running. Thomas Young beginning to find his flow now. And it's Zhu leading from Young. But Young fighting. And Young's going to break the tape in first to take Paralympic gold for Great Britain. The European champion becomes the Paralympic champion. Thomas Young of Great Britain with the performance of his career. Dipping below 11 seconds. 10.93 unofficially. It's been rounded up to 10.94, and that is a new area record. So what, what, has, what has your career in football then kind of taught you in just wider life or in your teaching and things like that? Because it's a strange career, isn't it? But it must have so many different parts that have helped out. So, so if I try to describe it best, um, you've got highs that are up there. And then you've got lows that are down there. So promotion and relegation, the two high points. Scoring five, scoring a hat-trick, fantastic performances, but also some, some poor performances. It teaches you to be resilient. And then when I've gone into what I would call mainstream work as a teacher, the highs and lows are, are much narrower in terms of their the, the distances. Um, but that's given me an understanding of the importance of how important sport is in terms of keeping us fit and healthy and our well-being, but also at the same time understanding that it can also have negative impact on our health and well-being and our fitness, et cetera, et cetera. So all those experiences have stood me in really good stead for, for my support of athletes from, if you like, uh, the likes of Leicester City players and Birmingham City players and, and Derby players who I've worked with. Um, while I was a teacher, because we do the education for those. So the likes of Ben Chilwell and Hamza Chowdhury and Harvey Barnes at Leicester. Um, there's, there's quite a few out there who I, who I taught at 16 and 17. And as soon as they realised that I was a footballer, they get, that gave me an association with them as I was walking into those training grounds. But that's then developed into quite a wide, um, a wider market now in terms of netball, women's rugby, triathlon, athletics, like I said, water polo, powerlifters, um, and, and that, those, those skills now in terms of communication has, has made me a really valuable asset to them in terms of their development, both educationally and sporting-wise as well. And I suppose it's, in, it's interesting for you, isn't it, that you get to take a, now you're out of playing sport, you got to kind of take a step back and watch people kind of in that bubble uh, it, have an yeah. effect on how they respond to things that are happening. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because actually I would have loved somebody to be able to do that for me 30 years ago. But like I talked about with, with Mick Rathbone and the smell of football, the, all sport has changed dramatically now. There's so much sports science support going on. There's so much psychological support going on. Um, all those different factors now allow the athlete to be better and perform better. Unfortunately, back in the mid 80s and early 90s, those, those things weren't around in abundance. So we had to learn to do that ourselves. Um, and yeah, the, the person that you would come home to talk to was your psychologist, was your support network, and that was your wife, your wife or your girlfriend. Mm. Um, yes, conversations with parents, but actually conversations with parents were quite tricky as well. They, they'd invested a huge amount of time to get you to events as a young player to give you the best chance. And still really supportive, but actually some awkward, awkward times coming back from a game when you've not performed very well um, and neither of you wants to talk about it. 
And and to kind of finish with something a bit frivolous, I just wondered, uh, you, you obviously came up against Nicky Law. Um, yes. Uh, I, I, he was a bit fit. We've had him on the podcast. It was great when we when we had him on. But um, I imagine he was quite a fierce competitor to come up against, was he? Yes, very, very physical. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I may still have bruises. <laughs> I was going to say, were there those kind of centre-halves that just kind of, I don't know, said a few things to you, gave you a bit of an elbow and... <laughs> <laughs> there was, I mean, that was part and parcel because, because actually, if we think again how football's changed, most teams now, certainly at the higher level, will not kick the ball long anymore. Whereas actually, the likes of Nicky and George Foster, um, Darren Carr, um, um, oh God, Williams, what was his first name? Mark. Mark. Yeah. Sorry, he'll, he'll never forgive me for that. Um, <laughs> they, they, they loved. A goalkeeper for the opposition kicking it out because they could go and climb all over you and and uh, it was just like oh god there's another goal kick that's that's flying above my head and somebody's going to head it and so so as the game's changed the role of a defender's changed so there's less heading now in the game than maybe there was and obviously with all the um, the dementia talk that's also having an impact um, but pitches have got better the the quality of the football now is not the same as it was 30 years ago. Um, so there's a, there's a whole different factor where the game is played a bit more on on the, on the ground and, and and the balls rolled a little bit more. Um, so those defenders will still be as physical and still be as aggressive, but actually they've got to learn to play football a little bit more from the back now and, and maybe think about the game rather than just going and whacking people up in the air. See that the, the tackle from behind's been taken out as well, whereas obviously late eighties, early nineties that was still involved. So so many different changes to the game which have all been really good, but all made us have to adapt our performance level to a, to change and make us better, better players and better thinkers about the game. Yeah. Well, you, you only have to watch that Maradona doc to see how much he's strapping his ankles up before every match because he yes. knows he's going to get yeah. absolutely smashed a dozen times um, a game. And, and the likes of Grealish, because actually uh, almost every minute of the game, he's been, if he's got the ball, he's being tackled or fouled. Um, and okay, some of it's minimal contact, some of it's quite heavy contact, but, but the, the, the game is still as robust, but the players have better technical skills, it's played quicker. Um, but yeah, you go and make two, two challenges like Nicky might have done back in the day. Now, he, he'd, be, he'd be walking after 20 minutes because the game's had to change and players have had to change. <laughs> 